Hello and welcome to Hedge Fund Tips with Tom Hayes. This is videocast episode 40 and podcast episode 30. This is for the week ending July 23rd, 2020. I'm recording this midday on Thursday. I won't be able to record tomorrow, so I wanted to get this out a day earlier. Um, we'll start off with the media spots. Starting with this morning, I had a great segment with Jill Wagner on Cheddar TV. Uh, so I want to thank Jill and I want to thank Francesca Conti for having me on. Um, what we covered in this segment, and the video will be available uh, later today. I'm waiting for them to post it on the site, but you can always access it right here at hedgefundtips.com where it says featured on. That will be the first video today. And Jill asked me, you know, what I thought about the market here. And this was about at the opening this morning. And I said, you know, I think with the market up 40, 45 percent off the lows, uh, people are wondering, is there any room left to run? Uh, and what I pointed out to her was the breath. And this was very, very timely with what we're seeing here midday in the market, this harsh rotation with uh, tech finally taking a little steam off. You're seeing Microsoft, Amazon, Apple, uh, Alphabet all, all coming in. They have hearings on Monday. Uh, Microsoft's cloud revenues, Azure, were lower growth than anticipated despite growing in the mid-40s. They were expected to grow in the mid-50%. So we're, we're starting to see that happening. And I said, I said to Jill, I said, look, there's, there's one thing we look at, which we're going to cover in this uh, podcast video cast, is uh, the S&P stocks above their 200-day moving averages. By the way, I just kept the suit on. That's why we're doing video this week. I had to have the suit on this morning. Um, and it's only at about 55 56% last I looked this morning. Um, so you've had this monster rally, and yet you've got 45% of this S&P stock still trading below their 200-day moving average. And that was the point that we were making with you know, the FANG stocks now accounting for, uh, in recent weeks, about 25% of the weighting of the S&P 500. If you look at the S uh, NASDAQ 100, this is from CNBC, uh, those stocks, including Tesla, it's basically seven stocks make up 49% of the weighting of the NASDAQ 100. So they've just become outsized, and today was an excuse for people to take profits. Uh, what's exciting is people are actually starting to talk banks. Jim Cramer was on the halftime show today pounding the table on Wells Fargo, completely different view than last week, but he changes. You know, it's up 11% since they cut the dividend. It was up today, midday. Uh, financials are outperforming today. Uh, it's at, at about break even while you're seeing tech stocks down. You know, Apple's down four and a half percent, Microsoft almost four percent. Uh, and here you have financials, uh, some of them actually positive. U.S. Bank Corp up almost one percent. Uh, the KB Bank Index up, MT Bank up 162, one, uh, one in. 1.62 percent so the regional banks are getting a bid the larger money center banks are, are stable in a down market and this is the rotation we've been talking about in recent weeks notes so um so that was the number one thing the other thing that i emphasized with her was the epic battle between value and growth uh value stocks outperform when it looks like we're going to recover quickly when we have a vaccine coming out um 
when cases are coming down, et cetera, which we saw in May and we saw in the last week, week, week and a half or so, whereas in late June uh, and early July, it was all into tech because cases started spiking. We started to seeing some uh, bars and restaurants, et cetera, closing in states around the country. And that's when money chased growth because it, the market was anticipating a slower growth environment. And that's why you had to bid up for those, t those FANG stocks the small pockets of growth that would do okay in a slow economy, people were willing to pay abnormally high multiples so long as the recovery was going to be slow. As we get closer to a vaccine, as the treatments get better, as the cases slowly and stubbornly start to come down in the Sun Belt, which we're going to discuss today, uh, that's a very, very positive thing for cyclicals. Cyclicals in value always outperform historically coming out of recessions. The recession is in the rearview mirror. We just had it in Q1 and Q2, definitionally defined as uh, two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth. And uh, so, so you can expect value and growth to start to perform and start to rotate, which is, which is exciting to start to see today. Um, the other theme in the market that I discussed with Jill was this continued beating economic data to the upside. Uh, and while you saw initial jobless claims at 1.41, that's largely attributable to those sunbelt spikes in the last few, few weeks to month and a little trepidation there. But continuing claims were, were phenomenal. They, they crushed expectations. 16.19 down from 17.06 uh, million last week. Over a third, just about a third of the people who lost their jobs before COVID have already gotten their jobs back. They're going to continue to, to make that happen with some of the aspects of the new stimulus bill, which we covered with Jill. Um, they are going to get an extension of the unemployment um, sweetener, but it's going to incentivize people to go back to work. We've been hearing anecdotally that many businesses have been tr having trouble getting people back to work because uh, they were making more money from that extra $600 a week. That's $2,400 a month plus whatever they were getting from the state. Let's call it 400 on the low end. So now you're at you know $48,000, $50,000 a year run rate, which for many people at the minimum wage and above, the, a lot of the front-facing jobs that were lost, they were, weren't earning anything near that. So there was no incentive to go back to work to make less money. So what Secretary Mnuchin said this morning is we're going to do 70% wage replacement to make sure people can pay their bills, they ha have enough to eat, and uh, they can, you know, be relaxed, but also have a sense of urgency to go out and find a new job or to go back to their existing job where they're going to get more money than they would get to stay at home, which is a very good thing. And that's going to do tremendous things for the job numbers in the months to come once that 70% cap is in. The other thing that's coming is direct stimulus checks again. Uh, that will be probably the lower the income threshold. I, I think they had a higher income threshold the first time. It's going to go down to lower. I've heard numbers around 40000 50000 So the people who need it the most are going to get money. That's a good thing. Payroll uh, tax cut is off the table for this bill. Uh, phase four, but they did say we could come back and have phase five before we know it if we need it. Uh, this one is going to probably be about a trillion dollars is, is the estimates. Um, there's money in there for testing. There's uh, uh, money in there for 
for states, etc. So that's a good thing, but you're going to see that back and forth. The headlines are going to fly different ways in the next few days. Uh, and we, in our weekly article, which we put out this morning, anticipated that and said, said to expect that in coming days slash weeks. Uh, but the most important thing that everyone was worried about was that cliff rolling off for the unemployed. The two-thirds who haven't got their jobs back yet, they are going to continue to get extra money on top of their state unemployment just uh, at a slightly less rate so that they have the urgency to go back to their jobs. Uh, so definitely. Uh, the other thing that I um, talked to, so the economic surprise index, uh, that is at record highs this week. Uh, again, it's coming off a little bit, but I think it was at 280. We'll, we'll take a look at that in the article today. Um, and that was evidenced in the continuing claims. That was evidenced in existing home sales up 20.7% relative to negative 9.7% last month. Um, and so what I was saying to Jill was that you could basically see for the, the market to sustain these levels and possibly push higher, you'll see rallies under the surface. In other words, the leadership's not going to the leadership is not going to be the same. There's going to be a change of, of leadership and a relative outperformance. It doesn't have to be either or, or zero sum, like tech has to collapse for cyclicals to do well. It's just not the case based on the weightings and how the economy is currently structured. But it does mean that you may see the value in cyclicals start to have better performance in this early stage of the recovery over the next 9 to 12 to 18 months, which has historically been the case because the Growth bar is low, it's easy to beat, and cyclicals do best in a high economic growth environment. Uh, we talked about how money supply has gone up 20, almost 25% in the last month. That bodes well for huge nominal growth within the next six to nine months. Milton Friedman was obviously right, uh, but he should have had a few more drinks with, with Keynes <laughs> uh, nonetheless. Uh, the other thing that supported this rotation is that 16% of earnings growth. So tech earnings estimates for 2021 are expected to grow at 16% relative to the rest of the sectors growing at 35%. So they've got the highest multiples with the lowest expected earnings growth. Uh, that is starting to, to work itself out. And today could be a seminal day in that change. Um, the other aspect that I talked to her about gives us some potential uh, extra room to move higher in the near term before taking a much needed uh, healthy healthy rest in 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 uh, coming weeks or or months uh, is the fact that the uh, last week, as we saw, the Bank of America Global Fund Manager Survey had managers only 14% of managers running a half a trillion dollars believed we were going to have a v-shaped recovery in many respects we've already had it in the economic data we've already had it in the stock market pricing but yet there's still so much embedded skepticism that's why the market has to climb higher and push more and more people in as well as this morning as you saw in the article the aaii sentiment survey results uh, came in at just 26.10 on the bullish percent. So the market goes up. People are so skeptical. This is the most uh, you know, unloved, uh, doubted rally of all time. And so long as that doubt and skepticism is there, it has to push higher because it's just going to keep squeezing the shorts and pushing people back into the market right before they'll pull the rug out, do a 5 or 10% correction to get out all the weak sisters before we can consolidate and continue a secular bull. 
So um, those were two huge sentiment indicators that I, I covered with Jill. And uh, lastly, I spent a lot of time on banks, which are, have been the uh, theme of the day here. Banks are strong. The rest of the market is weak. And I talked about CECL, the accounting requirement change. And the interesting note that came out in, uh, I think it was Al Root put out an article in Barron's. And I talked about CECL last week before anyone was talking about it on CNBC Europe or, or London. And basically uh, what CECL does, it's a new accounting change that showed up this quarter in their reporting that forces banks to take 100% of the losses they expect to achieve in the life of the loan on the day that they write it. So they accelerate the loan loss and the credit reserves, meaning effectively they're well over conserve, over reserving. And as that assumption proves to be false, they will take that those reserves back as income or earnings in future quarters. And we're gonna to start to see that moving forward. But just to give you an idea of how over-reserved banks are right now, uh, last, uh, uh, the, the same quarter last year, a, a year ago, the top four banks earned $33 billion in pre-tax income. This quarter, the top four banks recorded $5 billion. So they took, and a lot of it was attributable to these, this new accounting standard, which just happened to go into effect right in the middle of a crisis. It's, it sounds like, you know, 2007 when they changed the uh, FASB, which is just mind-boggling uh, how, how bad the timing can be. Nonetheless, if you back out the paper loss effectively, the, the, the accelerated credit reserves, um, the top four banks would have earned $28 billion this quarter relative to $33 billion last year, okay? But considering we've just been through what could have been a Great Depression if not for Secretary Mnuchin, the Fed, the administration acting on this quickly, um, it's just staggering. And if people could think about it and see it apples to apples that we were only off, you know, 28 billion relative to 33 billion year on year. And some of these stocks like Wells Fargo, I spent a lot of time on, obviously we own, um, trading at a 30, well, it was down to like a 38, 40% discount to book value a, a week or two ago when I was saying sell the rumor, buy the news on the dividend cut. Well, now it's up over 11%. Uh, let's see, midday, it's about flat. So, so 10 and a half, 11% in the last week since they cut the dividend. And um, uh, Jim Cramer was actually out on the halftime show today. Uh, blew my mind, just totally talking about Charlie Scharf, et cetera. The other thing that's very interesting about um, Bank of, uh, about uh, Wells Fargo is that they just replaced the CFO this week. Shrewsbury's out, a new gentleman's in from, um, from uh, Bank of America, Bank of New York Mellon, and what's the most exciting thing about that is the Fed put a 1.95 trillion dollar asset cap. They can't grow assets in in 2018 to punish them for the aggressive sales practices uh, and the things they did. Well, now they've cleaned house. 100% of management that was that oversaw that have been uh, terminated. So effectively or were in the company when it happened. So, you know, I don't want to point fingers at any specific person per se. Uh, but now they could effectively go back to the regulators and say, look, we've changed our ways. We've cleaned house. Here are our new procedures. We need you to lift this asset cap. Uh, number one, uh, because it, it, it helps us. Okay. But number two, 
you need me for the recovery. I'm the largest small business lender, consumer lender. I am the largest lender in this country. If you're going to have a recovery, you need me at max lending capacity because you don't get a, a recovery without credit growth and expansion. Uh, and that's exactly what Wells Fargo can do moving forward. And now that they've cleaned house, they can legitimately say, who are you punishing? We've already punished everyone. They're out. Here are our new procedures. We've proven ourselves. Let's go lift this asset cap. And you could see this thing just rip right up to uh, book value and beyond, Uh, potentially even without that. But with that, that would be an enormous catalyst. And Wilfred Frost actually brought that up on CNBC this week when uh, Shrewsbury stepped down. And that that was just a, a whipped cream on the thesis. And that was pretty exciting to see. So, um... Cecil's become uh, my favorite word to say, as you can tell in the past two weeks, and uh, that was pretty much most of what we covered with Jill Wagner, and thank you to Francesca Conti for inviting me on the show as well, and I know uh, Kristen Scholler is part of that segment as well, so thanks to all three for having me. Um, Okay, next. Uh, This is Jill Wagner and Kristen that cover that segment. And then uh, thanks to Devik Jane and Meta Singh for including me in their article on Reuters on Monday. He was basically asking me what's, uh, what's going to decide how the week goes. And I talked to him about the EU deal, which we got. The market rallied on that. Uh, vaccine developments, which we got. The market liked that. And the uh, stimulus deal... Uh, which we're working on right now. We had some positive announcements on that this morning. So thank you again to Devik, Jane, and Meta Singh for including me there. So now let's get down to the article of the week, which you should have got this morning, the Old Dominion one-man band stock market and sentiment results. I love Old Dominion. Was scheduled to see them at the Meadowlands this, uh, in August, but uh, that's been push- pushed off a year. Uh, you know, it's, it's so interesting. If they just made masks mandatory, I showed you pictures uh, a few weeks ago from 1918 when you had thousands of people at baseball games, but they, they were all wearing masks in the stands. Maybe we could have things like this, but uh, we're not there yet. I think we'll, we'll, we'll get there. Um, okay, so we've covered a lot of this here in Jill's segment. And again, uh, click on Featured On. That video should be up later today once I get it from Cheddar. And uh, this is the concept that I covered with Jill about the S&P 500 stocks above their 200-day moving average. Look at this. We've had this monster, you know, call it 45% rally off the lows, and yet only 55 or so percent of those stocks are above their 200-day. Now, what's also very interesting about this, um, you can see every time it's come off an extreme of about 10% um, above their 200-day moving average like we saw in, uh, you know, just recently in March, in uh, December 2018, in during the euro crisis in uh, fall of 2011, and during the great financial crisis in 2008-2009. When they get up to this level, you have some consolidation like we've recently had before taking the next leg higher. The other thing that also leads me to believe there's a little more gas in this tank is because 100% of the big corrections that we've had in the last decade plus have been preceded by levels 
where over 83, 84, 85% of the S&P 500 stocks were above their 200-day moving average. Now, it doesn't mean when you hit 83, 84, 85% of S&P stocks above their 200-day moving average, you should expect a crash, but it does mean that it's unlikely you're gonna get a major crash until you're at those levels. So for instance, if you look at 2013, we've been rallying for like a year and a half. We hit above 80. We kept rallying for another few years, um, and then we crashed. But we, we've not gotten 20% plus corrections big corrections without first going over 80, you know, 83, 84, 85%. So we're not there, which leads me to believe that even if we're chopping around on the headlines, uh, we are going to probably push a little bit higher before we, we take a breather. So that's uh, good news on that front. Um, okay, the next thing that we, ta we talked about, the epic battle. Uh, this is the chart from last week of the S&P 500, which was pushing up against that resistance. If you remember, uh, we were saying this is the inflection point between the S&P trading positive for the year. We accomplished that in the last week. We did push through. The next step is this gap to fill this gap from um, uh, late February, which would take us up to about 33 yeah, 33.25 or so. And then from there, we start to think about new highs. I don't know if we'll get that first or if we'll have to take a breather, but uh, certainly that gap should be well well within reason. Uh, probably the opposite of what Wells Fargo was. Remember, Wells Fargo was sell the rumor, the dividend cuts coming once they announced the bad news, buy, stocks up 10 and a half, uh, probably 11% by the end of the day. Looks like we're coming back into the close. Um, this will be by the rumor with the stimulus deal, maybe sell the news. We'll see how high the market is, um, but uh, we should continue to get this back and forth. It's gonna happen, it's not gonna happen, et cetera. And on that basis, uh, probably push higher by the rumor. And then when they pass it, then we'll see where we are. Uh, the other thing that supports it is, don't forget, we got to 3,400 on the S&P 500 with $163 of earnings last year, and um, we are still holding strong at $163 of earnings for 2021. These might be conservative considering the amount of stimulus. We've already always talked about 10 trillion is already in, stimulus aid in liquidity. Now we're getting another trillion in phase four, maybe we get a phase five. This was uh, from, I think his name is Chris Capilotti on LinkedIn, he posted this. I think it's cool. He always like takes pictures of a real newspaper and posts it as his picture online. Um, and it shows the amount that the Fed has actually done the, uh, from the Wall Street Journal, expanded its asset holdings to stabilize the economy after the coronavirus pandemic and it just shows loans to financial institutions, treasury and mortgage holdings, and uh, emergency credit programs. And it shows you how it's actually gone up, you know, from three trillion to about seven. So, you know, three some odd, uh, it, it's grown dramatically and you can take a look at that chart there. We also know about the balance sheet expansion, et cetera, which is all baked into that. So that was just a visual. And then this was the economic surprise index I referenced. It actually got up to just about 280, came back in a little bit yesterday. This is from Yardeni. But uh, this is record-breaking beats on economic data, and that supports uh, a positive things happening um, in the very near term, and we'll see from there. 
Then I went into the components of the stimulus package. Remember, I write these the night before, so we got a lot of announcements this morning regarding this that we covered with Jill. Uh, but, um, you know, it may be two phases, a quick trillion dollars to keep the unemployment extension going and some other things baked into that with testing and states, et cetera. But ultimately, they're going to want to get aid to state governments, employee protections, legal safe harbors for employers, unemployment insurance reform, employee retention tax credits, more small business aid, food stamps, money for schools to open, and more money into the PPP to keep employees after August 8th when it uh, expires. Secretary Mnuchin also said this morning he wants to, the smaller business to be able to get another check to keep more employees on longer, so that'll be a good thing. And that was from an article by Dan Clifton at Barron's. You can click on it at the site. Um, the Wells Fargo update, we covered a lot of this. This is just a visual as of last night with the uh, stock being up 10.6%. It looks like now a little bit more than that um, since they cut the dividend. So that continues to play out as anticipated. And uh, we talked about the recovery, the uh, asset cap, the CFO, and uh, Cecil Impact, which we covered last week on CNBC London, which you, which you can play which goes into more detail. So you can play the Cheddar video when that comes on later today and this uh, CNBC one from last week if you want to understand Cecil better. And the impacts, we also wrote about it in the article here and I've covered these components. Uh, basically, if you were measuring apples to apples year on year, last year the top four banks would have earned 33 billion pre-tax they did this year would have been 28 billion they only recorded 5 billion because of an accounting change that's a paper change and that that money once is proven over conservative particularly with the vaccine coming in the next three to four months um, um you know that's going to come back as earnings and no one is expect no one is is looking at that i listened to that some of the best bank analysts, and no one's talking about this on TV, and none, I haven't seen it in any notes yet. Hopefully, a few of them will, will uh, take this idea and run with it. Um, I think maybe Kramer's getting the point because he was really excited about Wells Fargo today after you know being in a completely different place last, last week when they cut the dividend. So that was very, very positive to see. Uh, and he's not too late. I think we're just getting started. So uh, good for him. Uh, flexible thinking, that's what makes very, very successful people. When the facts change, you change your mind. Next, um, what else do we like in the cyclicals bucket? We, wait, we like, we, we talked with Jill about home builders. Uh, those have had a huge run already off the bottom. We, we've done really well with that. Uh, defense stocks are still cheap and particularly cheap re uh, relative to the rhetoric that's building up with China or regarding the South, uh, South China Sea, the um, power grab in Hong Kong, um, the uh, consulate shutting down in uh, Houston, um, the leveling the playing field for uh, auditing Chinese firms that list in the United States to be treated exactly as all other firms, no special treatment. Um, so, uh, you know, in Pompeo, building alliances now around the world, to, it seems like the intent is to put China in the penalty box with trade uh, and some, yeah, obviously disappointment over the communications on COVID in the early days. And um, uh, th those, are, those are basically all the disagreements. So should Pompeo be successful in building alliances to um, 
you know, get everyone acting on a level playing field, China acting among, uh, you know, by the same laws that everyone else has to follow with trade and intellectual property, et cetera. Uh, that, that will have an impact on China, and there's no telling what, what the retaliation may or may not be. So defense stocks, irrespective of what happens with China, whether it, you know, my general view is so long as the phase one is held and they continue to make their ag purchases, their energy purchases, et cetera, my sense is that the rhetoric will build, but, you know, all the other issues will get worked out. I think if they drop the ball on phase one and these alliances are built, you know, it can escalate and that would particularly help this group. But this group is so cheap right now and the move into cyclicals, I think this group wins irrespective of what happens with China. So let's, you know, hope every cooler heads prevail, but we also have to make sure that everyone's operating on a level playing field. So that, that's the name of the game. There's a lot of moving pieces right there. I think even if there's nothing to it, defense stocks are great here. They're cyclicals, uh, they're cheap. They're in line with the rotation that we're anticipating in the early stages of a recovery. Uh, if something does escalate, these things could go through the roof. So uh, we like a basket of defense stocks. Now, COVID data. This was really blew my mind this weekend. So last week, and it's it's tempered a bit. Uh, the the um, how how it's been portrayed. But last week there was just every day, record cases, record cases, record cases. And I'm thinking, holy cow, what, what is going on? Is everyone French kissing like in the street, like in the Sun Belt? Like how is everyone getting, how are things going so bananas here? Especially when in the tri-state area, we kind of beat it. Um, you know, we didn't take masks seriously in the beginning and our cases spiked and we had, had to pay the price for that. But now like you go out, everyone's out and everyone's wearing masks when they're out. So it's a great thing. Our cases plummet. Our debts plummet, everything's working, it's a good thing. Now we gotta get to, to work all around the country. But <laughs> it's not as bad as I feared listening to everything that was going on last week. I was, I was really like, what is going on with these cases? So effectively, if you look at the data, it's mind boggling. By the way, I'm gonna nip two things at once because uh, for our ask me anything question of the week, which came from John Kay. I don't put out people's full names because I don't know if they want their name out or they don't want their name out, but John Kay from Ohio, uh, who's actually a big deal there. If you saw his signature, um, he owns some very influential uh, thing, things out in Ohio. Anyway, um, uh, media properties. So he asked me uh, in the Ask Me Anything, lots of conflicting info on COVID-19. Uh, Tom, lots of conflicting info on COVID-19. I hear the largest amount of cases are occurring in nursing homes. And your report last week, if I understood correctly, the percent of infections is about the same, while the death number is down even, but due to more testing, actual cases are up. Okay, yes, this is exactly what we're going to cover here, John. I'm glad you brought this up. With all that being said, does it make sense for states like Ohio to mandate masks because infections are up. Seems to me best advice is to stay away from nursing homes. Um, yeah, that, that, that's very interesting, by the way. Uh, I think we put out a stat a couple weeks ago that 43% of all cases were from nursing homes. So when you backed it out from 140,000, it came down to like whatever it was, only 70,000 of actual cases. I mean, every, every life is critical and important. But they, the, the nursing homes were mismanaged because no one knew what they were doing in the beginning so, or, or how this thing worked. 
so, so if you back out those high risk people who are now self quarantining and taking all the necessary precautions, which is why those are going down, you know, seventy thousand. That's a that's a bad flu season. Bad average flu season is about fifty nine thousand if you look at uh, CDC. Um, so you make a lot of interesting points here, John. Let me see if this data can clarify it because. After last week's podcast, I went and pulled the data because I was just, I, I couldn't get this out of my mind. Just all day long, 24-7, record cases. is going through the roof. So uh, on April 17th, when the testing infrastructure was fully up and running, if you remember, we started to realize there was a problem in March, to July 17th, between those two dates, maybe three months, April 17th, the testing was 158,000 for that day, okay? April 17th. In, on July 17th, the testing was 851,000, okay? So the testing over those two dates was up 436% while... The cases went from 30,000 on April 17th to 69,000 on July 17th. So testing was up 436% while cases were up 124%. So is it bad news cases were up 124%? Yes, it's bad news cases were up 24%. But when testing is up 436%, it's a natural assumption. Uh, that cases are going to go up, and they went up a lot less than testing did, which is really, really good news. That's number one. Number two, the deaths on April 17 were 1,978. Uh, obviously, every one of them is a tragedy and important. I just, this is a market podcast, and you know that that's very sad, and we have to acknowledge that that affects lots of families, and it's a lot, a lot of sadness and tragedy. On July 17th the deaths dropped to 852. So while cases went up, while testing went up 436%, cases went up only 124%, deaths plummeted from 6.3% down to 1.2% of cases. So this is a big deal. So, you know, you can say record cases, but you also have to say record testing, which is a good thing. And you also have to say the most important thing is treatment success is at an all-time record high. To have only 1.2% of cases on, on July 17th. Now, I understand there's a lag, but we're comparing apples to apples because there's a lag on July 17th. There was a lag on April 17th. There was a lag on April uh, May 17th. So we're apples to apples here because the lag is applicable across the board. And um, so... That is something to celebrate in one sense, that treatment success is at a record high and that the record new cases is because we have 4x the amount of record new testing. Um, so that's very interesting. The other thing that's kind of interesting, now we've tested 50 million some odd people and the second best country is India. They've tested about 12 million people. They've got 1.4 billion people. We've got 330 million people. So obviously we're going to have the most cases because because we we have that. Um, but if you extrapolate it out, which is kind of interesting, um, you know, if you look at the average of cases as a percentage of tests, let's call it 10% round numbers. 
on 330 million people, if we did the remaining, you know, 280 million tests tomorrow, let's assume this extrapolates out. Now you could say, no, only sick people to go, go to get, people who feel sick go to get tested. Okay, maybe that's true. But let's just say you had 10% 10, 10 of the population may have already had it or maybe asymptomatic. So assuming we did tested 100% of the population tomorrow and these stats held, we'd have 30 some odd million people who, 33 million people who have or had COVID, number one, and we probably got another 10, 20, or 30 million people that have antibodies, which tells me that, uh, you know, we could be at a 20% threshold of the population that's already exposed. Now, when we started, they said 70% of the people had to, you know, have antibiotics or have been exposed to get herd immunity. Now there are multiple studies coming out and you can test them because it's still a debate. It's not the law, but do your own research. I, I think I covered last week, Gabriel Gomez on theatlantic.com. There were a couple other studies that came out this week. This, the uh, Swedish guy came out. The Sweden, by the way, that everyone laughed at for doing the herd thing because they had slightly more deaths in the short term, their numbers have now fallen off a cliff and they never shut down at all. Uh, they think the threshold is much lower. But we may, we don't know, okay, and we're not going to, I don't think they're going to take any policy around this thesis, which they shouldn't. They should just work on masks, treatments, vaccines. But we may actually be at or near herd immunity by the time we get the vaccine. And we'll know... You know, I'm very curious to see if New York, New Jersey, Connecticut's cases plummeted because we weren't paying attention. Then we all put masks on as people got sick around us. And because we're so good with our masks, our cases have plummeted. Or does it hit a critical mass that we're not aware of because we don't have 100% of the people tested that either age or antibodies or genetics or blood type we've read about blood type like my wife was like well i have xyz blood type so i won't get it oh you have the worst blood type you better wear a mask and i'm like i think i already had it don't worry about it uh plus i've got my ivermectin uh which uh, you know it's unproven except every concierge doctor in new york gives it to their wealthy clients and it works within 48 hours no idea why we're not using that but the doctors can email me and tell me why I'm wrong about that one. All I know is if I do get it, I'm taking that and banging it out in 48 hours. Leaving that aside, um, that's basically, you know, so, so did New York, New Jersey, Connecticut fall off because we all wore masks or did we fall off because we hit that threshold? And we're going to know that based on what happens in coming weeks in the Sun Belt. So, I'm going to show you the data. It, it, they've been stubborn as hell down there, partially because their testing is going through the roof. But what's, what, what also struck out, my friend from Baden-Baden um, sent me this thing, uh, data, and he said, stop tracking COVID deaths. Just track deaths. Some of them are misclassified. So I said, oh, okay, conspiracy theory, get, get out your tinfoil. So we're not even going to go there. But what we're going to say is, if you look at all deaths from every cause, whether it was diabetes, whether it was COVID because of diabetes, whether it was, you know, riding off a cliff on your bicycle by mistake because you're not used to riding a bicycle, and that's what everyone does these days is they ride bicycles. But look at what has happened to deaths. They spiked in March because of the New York, New Jersey, Connecticut. We didn't know what we were doing. Now, 
<laughs> including the Sun Belt, because of treatment success, probably because more people aren't traveling, etc., cetera, uh, tripping on sidewalks, yada, yada. Deaths overall in the population have never been lower as far back as this goes. This is only back three, four years, but we have the lowest deaths per capita that we've had in the, in the recent past, including COVID. So less people are dying every single day than die when we don't have COVID. Uh, and that started, uh, looks like a few weeks ago. So uh, pretty exciting news to see on the whole that less people are dying. Obviously we gotta kill this invisible enemy, but let's look at the stubbornness of the states Arizona, it's coming down, but boy, is it stubborn. But when you go to the site, this is all from usafacts.org, and you can see the daily testing numbers. I've got the hyperlinks in the article at daily, at uh, COVID tracking, what does this say? COVID tracker or covidtracking.com. Just click on the link. You don't even have to know what it says. So you see this peak back here, Arizona. It's slowly coming down. We, it looks like we had a little spike yesterday, but it's coming down. California, big spike a few weeks ago. It's coming down, stubborn. Texas looks like it's coming down, a little spike yesterday, stubborn. Uh, Florida is coming down, that's, that's legit. Georgia is coming down. So they're stubborn, but they're coming down. Now, are these coming down because of mask mandates? Like uh, John asked in his Ask Me Anything question for the week. I think mask, I think there's no downside to masks. I think we should all wear masks when we go out in the public because it's the only weapon we have right now to crush this thing. Um, I covered last week, Mark Benioff said, if we all wear masks, we'll kill COVID in three weeks. I don't know if that's true or not, but I don't think there's any downside to trying. You know, what, what if it's hyperbole and we all do it and cases only come down 10%? That, you know, that, that would be better off than where we were. Um, okay, now, um, so I just ended with wear a mask in public. It's our best weapon to suffocate and starve the invisible enemy if it has no hosts until a vaccine treatment comes to destroy it, which is on its way. And we continue to get great news about that every single day. Now, onto the shorter term, we covered this sentiment. This was a little surprising that the AAII sentiment results this week came down to 26.06 from 30. It just goes to show there's so much doubt in this rally. And so long as that doubt and skepticism and um, improper positioning persists, the market has to push higher because the market's designed to cause the most pain to the most people every single day. And, and when you've got most people bearish, bearishness went up, bullishness that is basically non-existent. This is where you, this, these are levels historically that you get paid to buy, not sell. Um, the market pushes higher to punish those people, forces them in at the last tick, and then it drops the, you know, trap doors them out uh, in, in, you know, days and, and weeks following their reluctant entry. Uh, fear and greed is only at 65. We want to start to get a little trimmy and uh, taking things off when we get to more of an extreme, you know, 80, 90. As you can see, we, we just haven't gotten there yet. We're, we're working our way up. We got down to like zero in March, but we haven't gotten back to euphoria or, or any level of real greed yet. You're seeing pockets of it in Robinhood and, you know, different stocks, etc. And then the National Association of Active Investment Managers, these guys have been chasing up. This is a high number, 90.53, so we're keeping an eye on that. There's, you know, there's a little bit of chasey chase going there, so we do have an eye on it. 
Now, our message for the week, we're very constructive in the intermediate term. We're going to take advantage of any additional buying opportunities in laggard and cyclical names per our discussion above, should they arise over the summer or fall. Um, I would not be surprised to see a bit of volatility in CHOP related to the stimulus bill over the next week, weeks. Well, we saw it today. We also saw tech finally, people are coming out of tech, taking the profits, uh, buy the rumor, sell the news on the earnings. And when that chop shows up like days today, remember three things. Number one, uh, this chart was from Bridgewater, um, was posted online. A friend of mine wor is, works there as a co-CIO. Uh, this is a great thing they put out. Basically, <coughs> the Fed did more in one month following this crash than they did in the first 18 months following the great financial crisis in 2008 and 2009 and more than they did in the first 43 months during the Great Depression. As Milton Friedman said, both of those could have been avoided. Um, he said the uh, Great Depression could have been avoided. That was a Fed problem. And uh, this is evidence that with the right action quickly, what can happen? And it was really interesting to see that table. Definitely check it out. Uh, jury and Timmer, second thing you want to remember is long-term investors are still too underweight equities, just as they were after the crash in 2009. Jury and Timmer, who heads uh, Global Macro at Fidelity, says that equities remain unloved by long-term investors. Here, the 12-month net flow into mutual funds and ETFs adjusted for inflation at $289 billion. It's on par with the kind of selling produced by the great financial crisis. You can take a look at it. Uh, you're seeing basically this negative 289 is exactly where we were in uh, early 2009, which was the beginning of the secular bull, bull market. And then people had to chase up for, for the next number of years. And finally, is the money supply growth in the last month? Uh, 25, some almost 25%, which I covered with Jill. Uh, expect some serious nominal growth in coming quarters with this level of M2 growth. Uh, there's no question about it. Milton Friedman was right. They didn't give him a Nobel Prize for nothing, but he should have probably had a few more drinks with Keynes. Next, um, so in the interim, we're going to hold what we have, shave in the event that we do hit levels of euphoria, which we've not seen since February. We're not quite there yet. Starting to see us getting closer, but not there. And until next time, uh, we're going to see uh, the one-man band hopefully turn into a full band with bass, uh, bass, guitar, tambourine, the whole show, uh, all the uh, cyclicals coming in to join the party and take us to that uh, you know, final short-term push. Okay, last few things here, and we'll get you on your way for um, just looking at the economic data this week. Uh, I mentioned the existing home sales were up 20.7%. The other thing is weekly mortgage demand from home buyers was up 19% annually. That was a big deal. Low rates, millennials. 85 million millennials at age 29. They were already starting housing formation before COVID. This has accelerated it. The housing market's hot in Connecticut for the first time in uh, since 2007. It's mind-boggling. Um, next things that came out uh, were the continuing claims to see that drop uh, close to a million. That was a, that was a huge beat. The initials, we're just going to have to see how the Sun Belt does, but I, I think we're getting close to those thresholds. Looking at those tables, looks a lot like New York, New Jersey, Connecticut. People are getting smarter about masks. Uh, and But it also may just be that they've hit the threshold where there's not enough hosts left. There's enough asymptomatic and antibodied people that um, 
that there's not much more to do in those areas. So that's it on the economic. Wanted to touch quickly on some earnings. We've had a lot of earnings. IBM. I mean, you're just seeing basically a green parade here, which is what we had anticipated because of the economic surprise index that that would trickle through into earnings and beat very low expectations and that's what we're seeing i mean even ibm beat like they can't do anything right for the last decade they're, they're finally getting their act together uh, cdns uh halberton beat on the bottom line top line was a little light um a lot of the banks beating a lot of these uh regional banks beating like crazy old national uh bank corp south fb financial um, and that's why they're up today. I mean, everything's down, banks are up. That's uh, it's exciting to see. Triumph, Bank Corp, they're all beating. Beating, 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 beating. Sierra Bank Corp, Guarantee Bank Shares, Spirit Texas Bank. Uh, it's all banks, beating like crazy. Um, Coke, little light on revenues, good on earnings. Um, Texas Inter Instruments was strong. Let's see. Yeah, that was the 21st. Uh, UBS beat on the bottom line, Intuitive Surgical beat, TD Ameritrade. So you can just go through these. Um, United beat on the top line, not, got, you know, missed big on the bottom line. We know why. It's not a surprise. Comerica, a lot of financials beating. This is just uh, strong stuff here. Uh, what else? Anything else? We, we know Microsoft. We know Tesla. Um... Biogen beat on top and bottom line. Las Vegas Sands obviously weak. We know that. They, you know, it's very tough to do business when your doors are locked. Uh, but they'll bounce back strong. And those were kind. Of, I mean, it's just bank after bank. Keycorp, Whirlpool crushed it. Um, you know, this is not what you would expect. With you know, the majority of the world sh shut down. These companies still pulled it off and were innovative and online and uh, there's demand there and there's massive stimulus that really helped it. So that was earnings. Then I just do sectors. I caught up on a bunch this week. Healthcare earnings uh, for the top 30 weights in the last 60 days. They were revised down by just 1.1%. So they were basically flat. That's much better than expected. People were looking for the end of the world. Technology uh, were revised up by almost 1% in the last 60 days. That's why they've had a rally in the last uh, few weeks. Communication services, pretty close. They were down 6.54%. And um, uh, what is this? Financials were, were also flat in the last 60 days, down 68 basis points for uh, 2020. And 2021 looked, looked, looked similar. Last thing I want to just cover is last week we covered how Warren Buffett was um, rumored to have bought about five, six billion dollars of Berkshire stock in the company, you know, buybacks because he thought it was trading at a discount to intrinsic value. We agree with him. Uh, but there was a new thing that he just plowed close to a billion dollars, uh, 800 million dollars in additional into Bank of America looks like in the last week. So close to a billion dollars in banks in the last week. So for everyone who thinks he's losing his touch, he just sat on his hands. He's waiting for the fat pitch and the fat pitch right now is banks. In my view, uh, that's my opinion. Do your own work, click on terms. Um, but um, you know, it's nice to see a legend uh, you know, doing the same type of trades and, and uh, buying financials. Berkshire, first off, $5 billion, another billion dollars in Bank of America. 
and I think we're going to start to see more and more of this as this rotation continues. So with that said, I want to thank everyone for tuning in for this week's podcast video cast. We're going to be back next week at the normal time, Friday night. Um, so you have it for the weekend. We'll be back same time, same place. In the meantime, I hope you found this helpful. Go to Hedge Fund Tips, check out any of the details and charts and data that I covered if you're listening on the podcast. And we'll see you then. Have a great one.